Well, I'm continuing in my look through the life of Abraham, and we've reached Genesis chapter 14, the passage that we read earlier. And so if you could return there in your Bibles to that reading that we had. Um, Some of you might recall, if you were here with us a fortnight ago, that I rather skipped over verse 18 to 20, those three verses, and the mysterious king who was called Melchizedek. And I did so with the intention of returning to study who he was in more detail today. Just to refresh your minds then, the background to these few verses is this. In verse 16, Abraham is returning back to his dwelling place by the terebinth trees of Mamre, with many people who had been taken hostage by the, and captive by the raiding forces of Chedorlaomer and his kings. They'd been taken captive from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities to the south of the Dead Sea. In verse 14, Abraham was given a message that his nephew Lot was amongst those who had been captured. And so we see that he arms all his servants, he gathers his household together, and he sets off in pursuit of his nephew Lot. Um, He pursues Chedorlaomer's victorious army, and he continued in a northward direction, uh, until he caught up with them. And in verse 15, we have a historical record of what Abraham did, um, his winning tactics. He split his army, and then he defeated Shedeliomer, and he slaughtered the army of his um, 140 miles north of where he came from in a place called Dan. In verse 17 and 18, though, we read this. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedeliomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, bought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. Out of this blue, we've had eight other kings named previously in verses 1 and 2. Out of the blue, all of a sudden, this other king Melchizedek is introduced to us as reader. And it's the first of only two very brief passages we have referring to him in the Old Testament scriptures. The other is found in the fourth verse of the 110th Psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I guess if there was ever a lesson for us to read the scriptures diligently and carefully and search for the truths found within them in a really thorough manner. This is it. Imagine you'd read all the Old Testament scriptures. Do you think in these three verses you would have identified how crucial and how key they were um, to one of the key aspects of Messiah's ministry? Because as we've seen in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, he takes these three verses and he expounds upon them. They're a central part of his theme for the joint priesthood and kingship of Christ and the superiority of Christ's priesthood in contrast to that of the Levitical priesthood. In fact, there are more mentions of Melchizedek in the letter to the Hebrews than there is in the entirety of the Old Testament. And what the writer to the Hebrews, who we think is Paul, really draws out is the relationship between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. If I express that in a different manner, the writer really makes it clear how Melchizedek is a type or somebody who prefigures and points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I'd like to continue looking at that theme 
Um, I have six points that we learn about Melchizedek that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't worry, some of the points are shorter than the others. I'm also very aware that Dad has been going through Hebrews, and we've covered a lot of the themes about the priesthood of Melchizedek with him. So my study is not intended to be exhaustive, but hopefully there are some fresh, some complementary ideas um, to add to what we've already seen. And my first point is this, the unexpected nature of Melchizedek's appearance. As Abraham returned home with all the captives and their possessions, he never had any intention of meeting up with this Melchizedek. In verse 17, the king of Sodom, probably not unexpectedly, comes out to meet Abraham. After all, Abraham had all his possessions and many of the people he'd captured off him. And he, the king of Sodom, came out to retrieve what was once his. When Abraham had set off in pursuit of Lot, we're told he'd gathered together all his forces and he also took with him some allies, Ana, Eshkol, and Mamre. Now, Abraham was pursuing his far superior force and he would have wanted every single man. The force he was pursuing was far bigger. They just defeated seven or eight other kings. So it stands to reason that if he had known who this Melchizedek was, he would have maybe petitioned him and asked him for help. Any help that would have come his way would have been greatly appreciated. But because Abraham didn't know yet, the victory was his. But as we see in verse 20, when Abraham gives him a tithe of all, this is not the actions of a man who has coolness towards somebody who didn't help him when he was in a time of need. They met as strangers in verse 18. And it was down to the divine intervention of a sovereign God and his sovereign will. In Melchizedek's unexpected appearance, you can see the divine revelation at work amongst him and Abraham. There can be no other explanation of how Abraham realized who he was. Um, Abraham didn't know what a priest of the God Most High was, um, This is the very first reference we have to a priest in the Bible. He didn't know he was king, but yet he could sense that God was in him and Melchizedek knew that Abraham was also a son of God. God had been acting in the background and leading them towards each other. And does this not remind you of the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ? Suddenly, unexpectedly, out of the blue, the angels announced the message to Mary, the shepherds, and the wise men. There have been 400 years of silence, 400 years since the last revelation from heaven, in which the world had carried on as it always had done. There have been wars and trouble and violence and agony. What we have in the first part of chapter 14 was sin wreaking havoc upon the world. And then God intervenes out of nowhere. God steps into the course of human history and he revealed himself to the world. It was uninvited, without request. Without warning, the second member of the Holy Trinity presented himself to this earth in the form of human flesh and he made himself known. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which is translated God with us. Even within this chapter of Genesis, it's interesting to note the contrasting reactions of the people in there to God's intervention. Abraham's eyes were opened. He acknowledges Melchizedek has been sent by God. He acknowledges that he was inferior to this king and this priest of God. But the king of Sodom, he met this man, saw the same exchanges, no doubt. A man who represents the people of this world, he was entirely unaffected by this meeting. He lacked understanding of who this Melchizedek was. And if we move forward 2,000 years or so later, we see the same thing still going on. There was a godly man called Simeon, devout and just. And in Luke 2, verses 30 to 32, he said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Words that are in stark contrast to the Pharisees in John 6, who said, Well, is this not just Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then, he says, I have come down from heaven? And so, in response to these unexpected intervention of God into the world, there are always two responses by people. There is either those who see what he has done, whose eyes he has opened, men of faith like Abraham, or there are men of the world who see nothing, who are entirely unaffected by it. And so, that's our first point, the unexpected nature of God's ways. The second point I'd like to look at is found in verse 18. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, bought out bread and wine. And I think we do need to be careful not to read too much into the scriptures at this point. Whilst there might appear to be an obvious link between the bread and the wine that Melchizedek bought out to Abraham, and then the bread and the wine that we take at the Lord's Supper, which commemorate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, The writer to the Hebrews covers two chapters from three verses and never once does he mention a link between the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper. So we should be careful not to get too carried away. The bread and the wine were probably just sustenance, stuff brought from Melchizedek's table, um, provisions for Abraham's body to refresh him and to revive him after the long distances and arduous um, nature of combat that he'd just been involved in. But as C.H. Spurgeon says, I'd rather see Christ within the scriptures where he is not than miss him where he is. And in John 6 verse 35, Jesus utters these words. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Christ is the one who sustains and provides for his people. He is our spiritual nourishment. At this time, let's remember, Lot was in a place of spiritual compromise. He was living in the wicked city of Sodom. And he'd been rescued by Abraham. But as we see, he was quite determined to go back there. So it must have been quite a lonely time for Abraham spiritually. Yet, when he met with this Melchizedek, not only was this act of hospitality one that revived him physically with the bread and the wine, 
But he must have drawn great comfort and strength from this meeting with a fellow believer, one who he just did not know existed at all. And it's comforting for us to remember that our heavenly advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows what it's like to experience these weaknesses of the flesh, these struggles we go through. And so the believer can draw great comfort from knowing, it's as Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, that he sympathizes with our weakness. It's something we do actually remember when we take the communion together, isn't it? We look around, it's a corporate act of worship. We all realize we're part of a fellowship, an inclusion of a great host of saints who are united by the Savior. So the bread and the wine symbolize the provision of Christ for us. My third point is the righteousness of Christ, which is shown through Melchizedek. In the Old Testament area, the names of people had significant meaning, um, something which we don't really have in our society today. And so we cannot ignore the fact, as the writer to the Hebrews also doesn't ignore, the fact that the meaning of Melchizedek means king of righteousness in Hebrew. Malik, it's a Semitic term for king, and Zadok is the Hebrew word for righteousness. There's no detail in how Melchizedek got his name, but there was something about his kingship, something about his person, which marked him out as a righteous and upright man. And it's something we saw also mark the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7, verse 26, It says, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And God is calling this world to come to this righteousness. The message of the Bible is that we must live to the glory of God and that we should please him. James 2 verse 23 says, Abraham believed God And it was accounted him for righteousness. So as Abraham met Melchizedek, he could identify this righteousness that was within this man. Melchizedek was different from the men of the world. It was witnessed by his demeanor, his generosity of actions. The fruit of the spirit was within him. It marked him out. There was love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness of thought. The believer is called to be like this. The believer is actually a man who is no longer conformed to the world and its desires, but he's a man who has been released, a man who is now marked by righteousness. And that's in great comparison to the man of the world. King of Sodom, his words were, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. He was out for himself. And so Melchizedek's righteousness in his conduct is a glorious gospel fact that all those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been made righteous. The righteousness of the law of God has been satisfied in the person of Christ. It's imputed to a believer, it's given to us, and so we are seen as blameless and guiltless before the law. Look at how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may also be married to another, 
to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Melchizedek's life was one that reflected the righteousness of Christ as a child of God. And the Bible tells us, our Saviour's teachings and things like the Beatitudes, that this new na- with this new nature, you cannot but help to live righteously and to please Christ and to reflect his glory. Yet, as I'm sure we're all well aware, it's the believer's experience that sometimes this seems so far from reality. We stumble and we fall. When we take the time to seriously examine our hearts and our minds, the depths of our sin and unrighteousness are exposed to us. Just look at the life of this righteous man, this godly man, Abraham. In verse 12, he was called to the pathways of righteousness. And by the end of chapter, sorry, in chapter 12, he was called to the pathways of righteousness. By the end of chapter 12, he'd sinned. He'd plunged into a crisis of his own making. So we have to ask, how can this be the case for those who have been made righteous by the perfection of Christ? How can we still sin and stumble? And it's important to remember, righteousness does not mean that we are freed from our sinful nature. The body and the mind that we still inhabit that fell with Adam in the Garden of Eden, is still sinful. But what righteousness in Christ does mean is that we've been freed from our sins. Nobody, save Christ, can claim sinless perfection in this life because our bodies are fallen. But the old man that was within us, the one who was a slave to sin, who was slave to the lusts and the passions of this world, ruled and governed by the devil, is now dead. And having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of God. And Paul says, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For a righteous man, sin is no longer indulged in. It's no longer celebrated. But rather we mourn and we repent of it. So the righteous do not follow the pathway of the world. I think it leaps out from this chapter that neither Abraham, Lot nor Melchizedek were initially involved in all the squabbles and warmongering that was going on in the whole area around them. Of course, they were dragged into it eventually, but even then their actions and their motivations were righteous and different from those of the other kings. And so it's by the difference of men like Melchizedek, their winsomeness, their attractiveness in comparison to the men of the world like the king of Sodom, that the righteousness of Christ is displayed to others. In Matthew 5, verse 16, we're exhorted, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our fourth point is tied in with the righteousness of Melchizedek and Christ because the author records for us Melchizedek was king of a place called Salem. And Salem has its roots in the Semitic language. It means peace. It comes from the Hebrew word shalom, or the Arabic word salam. 
when they greet each other, peace. And the city of Salem would later uh, become known as Jerusalem. Jeru, the Lord will exalt, Salem, peace. The place where the worship of God would go on in the temple, the place where he was pleased to dwell. And the writer to the Hebrews um, expounds upon this in chapter 7, as we um, read earlier. He wants us to think about this righteousness and this peace that came together in the form of a person. It's in his position as a king of righteousness and a king of peace that Melchizedek is revealed to be a type of Christ. Peace and righteousness, they have to come in the form of a person and they cannot be separated. And there are many people in our world today who are chasing after this peace, this inner part of peace that we are all aware that we do not have, that things are not as they should be. As we look around, there's an uneasiness at sin and the evil in this world. And people look for this peace and contentment. And they do so, or try to do so, without God. And our world does have its answers. It says there's whole industries devoted to pleasure. Um, People seek solace through drugs or entertainment or alcohol or work or video games or social media. Many people are trying to find this peace with God, but they cannot find it because they are not looking in the pathways of righteousness. For all the good works they do, for all the deeds they do, they remain unrighteous people who are still slaves to sin and the tyranny of the devil. If I put this positively rather than negatively, in order for us to have peace with God, you have to be righteous and without sin and fault before the law. Peace and righteousness are two things that are mutually exclusive. We have this um, demonstrated really clearly for us in the Bible. Just think of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Before they fell, they walked in the garden with God. Everything was perfect and as it should be. They enjoyed a relationship with him of peace and joy and great contentment. But what happened when they were tempted and fell and ate the forbidden fruit? Can you remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 we read, The Lord God was walking in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They were very much aware of their nakedness and shame in God's presence. They were troubled by their wrongdoing. They knew they had transgressed God's word, his law, and they were no longer righteous before him. And that is the problem for all of us, because we've all sinned. But as we looked at earlier, we saw righteousness can be found, and it's only found in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so too, also, our peace can only be found in this one man. Our peace with God is found through his death on the cross. Paul puts it like this, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if the Lord Jesus Christ is little more than a good moral teacher to you from the past, if you are indifferent to what you read about him within the scriptures, then no matter how good you feel you have been in this life, no matter what good you have done, you cannot be at peace with God because the natural state of the man of this world who is without Christ is to hate the law of God and so therefore it stands to reason that he cannot be at peace with God. 
But it's only the believer who enjoys this peace with God. This believer who eagerly anticipates the heavenly Jerusalem. This is why in um, verses 22 to 24, Abraham, whose eyes were fixed on the things of God, who had peace with God, could lift his eyes from the things of the world and say to the king of Sodom, you have all your riches, you have all your people back. I am not going to sully the honour and the glory of God with the things of this world. Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Fifthly, the blessings of Christ, which we see in this chapter. In verse 19 to 20, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. It's blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In this blessing, there's two parts to it. The first part is Melchizedek appealing to the great creator God, the Lord Most High of whom he served, the one who he acknowledges created all things and rules all things. And this is the same sovereign God, isn't it, who we acknowledge in the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then in verse 20, we have the second part of the blessing. It's acknowledgement and praise for the fact that he has given Abraham this victory, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek's blessing, it confirms that the Lord was indeed on Abraham's side. And the most high God whom Abraham worshipped was also the most high God whom Melchizedek served. And I think the importance of this blessing can often be overlooked and easily missed. But it's a comfort, isn't it, to remember as God's children that the bounteous blessings and privileges that apply to Abraham are also ours. In Paul's opening greetings to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we live in an age where bestowing a blessing upon somebody is not really part of our culture anymore. It's quite alien to us. But the importance of it and what it means, especially in this Old Testament era, can actually be seen a few pages later in Genesis 27 in the lives of Jacob and Esau. Remember Esau's reaction after Jacob had cheated him out of the blessing from his father Isaac. Genesis 27 verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. It meant so much to him. But then in verse 31, once he realized he'd been deceived out of it, we read, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Later on in Genesis 32, we're told Jacob wrestled with God. He dislocated his hip, but he would not let this pre-incarnate form of God go until he had blessed him, because they realized the importance of God's blessings in their lives. And so we must remember that our God 
delights to bless us through the Lord Jesus Christ. James Smith, he was a predecessor to Spurgeon at the Met Tab. He said this, There never was a need that ever pierced the heart of fallen humanity that had not been anticipated and provided for in the person and fullness of Christ. There should be no need for despondency or despair in the Christian's life. We have all the blessings of the Father um, expelled upon us. And Abraham acknowledges this in verse 20 with his tithe. And this is really my final point, our response to what God has done for us. Abraham responded um, with a tithe. He gave him a tenth of all things of the choicest spoils. And as we reflect upon this, let us, like the writer to Hebrews, just remember who Abraham was. He was the founder and the father of the Jews. The only person in the entirety of the scriptures who was described as the friend of God. This is the one who was often described as, God described himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham, the great patriarch, the founder of this entire covenant people, the Jewish nation. Now try to remember the discourse between the Jewish leaders and our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8, verse 33. They were saying to him, we are Abraham's descendants. And then a few verses later in verse 39, Abraham is our father. These people were so proud of their association with such a great man. And we all agree he was a great man. And yet, by his tithes, Abraham was demonstrating that he recognised somebody was far greater than him. There was somebody who had more authority, somebody who had authority over him. The supreme religious authority of which Melchizedek is a type, as priest of the God Most High, had greater authority than he did as victorious king. And we don't have time to go into it all this evening, but this morning rather, but if you read John chapter 8, you can see how the Jews refused the authority of Christ because they supposed Abraham was far greater than him. And this is, the reason for this is they hadn't got the humble, submissive attitude that Abraham had. He had a righteous faith. He knew that Melchizedek was higher than him. Um, these Jews could not see that the one from whose loins the Levitical priesthood came, he submitted to a higher priesthood. And so the writer to the Hebrews quite logically argues that if Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, then somebody who is of the order of Melchizedek has to be far greater than Abraham himself. And this is um, what he's summarizing the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 Verse 11, he says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So Abraham's response recognizes that Melchizedek is pointing to a superior priesthood. So that's just been six points from this passage, the unexpected nature of God's ways, his provision, his righteousness, his peace, his blessings, and the response from his people. 
I'm aware that there is so much more. It's such a detailed part of Scripture. And I think, God willing, Dad's hoping to do Hebrews 7 very soon. So he's going to focus on these other aspects. But I do hope that you've been challenged to search the Scriptures diligently as we read them to try and see these small things in there and above all see how everything points to Christ as being superior to everyone else in the Scripture and to point to what he has done for us.